With summer winding down and the Lean Out podcast about to go on hiatus for several weeks, I wanted to leave you all with a really compelling story. A story of one of Canada's most famous journalists, an investigative reporter and war correspondent, and someone who cared deeply about the truth. This is also a story of that reporter's son and his quest to understand his father. A quest that took him around the world and inspired him to put pen to paper. This book helped me reevaluate what kind of man my father was, what kind of reporter he was. And I realized, yes, he was unusually brave, but I don't think he was motivated by seeking thrills. I think he was motivated by seeking the truth. And I, and I know that sounds corny and, you know, what journalists wouldn't say that, but he was absolutely devoted to getting the other side of the story, to getting the truth, even if it meant risking his life. Eric Regulli is the European bureau chief for the Globe and Mail newspaper. He's also the son of the late Bob Regulli. Eric's new book is called Ghosts of War, Chasing My Father's Legend Through Vietnam. I'm pleased to have Eric Regulli as my guest for the last summer episode of Lean Out. Eric, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me, Tara. Pleasure to be on your program. So nice to have you. I found your book incredibly moving. I also learned a lot uh, about the Vietnam era, about the history of journalism, and about your father, uh, Bob Regulli, a famous reporter whose legacy should not be forgotten. Let's talk a bit about his story to start. What do listeners need to know about his early life to help them understand how he became the journalist that he did? Well, he's, um, he's of Slovak descent. His parents, my grandparents, were born in Czechoslovakia, now Slovakia, very close to the Polish border. And they came to Canada around the turn of the century, meaning the 19, about 1900. And they went to where Slovaks went in Canada, which is Fort William slash Port Arthur, which is now Thunder Bay at the uh, top of Lake Superior. And they made lives there. Um, they were not war refugees, but they were certainly poor. They came knowing no English. My father was born in 1931, right after the Depression started, and he had, a, by all accounts, Tara, a miserable upbringing. They, were, they grew up in a small farm outside of Fort William, and um, I visited the farm, and it was, it was on the side of a mountain, and uh, I don't know how they farmed it. Um, then they moved into the town, but they, they really had no money. My my father's mother was treated as a slave. She had seven children to raise, um, including a couple of uh, adopted children. And my father's tragedy was when he was five years old, a kid shot by accident, shot an arrow into his eye and uh, it blinded him one eye. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was he, he a scab grew over that eye and made him look like a freak. It was this, this, this white film that grew over his eye. And there was no OHIP back then. And uh, his parents didn't know enough even to take him to the hospital, though he could have been cured. Anyway, he felt like a freak. He retreated into books. 
And he discovered the world through books. And I think that's what gave Bob Reguli, my father, this yearn to see the world, to have adventures. He was very smart, incredibly well-read. He was the first Reguli that I know of that went to university, went to the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. And he wanted to see the world. And, it, you know, it's probably because he had this, this freak accident when he was a kid. Mm. And he, he did see the world. He had an incredible career. He got uh, big investigative scoops, some of the biggest in Toronto Star's history, including tracking down mobster Hal Banks. He covered racism in the States, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. He was in the room when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. He went to Gaza and Palestinian refugee camps. He went to Nigeria. He lived and reported you know, from many countries. But it was Vietnam that captured him, that in many ways defined him. Why do you think that conflict loomed so large for your father? It was, well, first of all, it was shortly after we moved. I was just barely old enough to remember um, what was happening. We moved to Chevy Chase. His reward for the the Gerda Munsinger scoop, Canada's first sex spy scandal, uh, was being sent to Chevy Chase, Maryland, where we lived, uh, to be the the Washington, D.C. bureau chief for the Toronto Star. And back then, the Toronto Star was the show in Canada. It was... Ernest Hemingway's paper. It was it was you know the, the razzle dazzle newspaper. The Telegraph and the um, the Globe Mail were considered lesser papers back then. And the big story was Vietnam. Now the point being, in 1966, the Americans thought this war would be over within six months. This you know, the Americans had won World War II. They did not lose in Korea. And that, you know, how could they not beat uh, a nation of what they call peasant rice farmers? I mean, it's a pejorative term, but that's what they thought of them as. And it was the big story, Tara, and uh, a huge story. And my father went there, as all good journalists do. He wanted to cover the big story, but it was also his first war. So it was a mixture of curiosity and also just being a good journalist. He wanted to f- go where the headlines are being made. In 1967, when he went, he went in the late spring of 67. Again, the Americans still thought they'd win the war, but the war was just starting to go against them. And my father went there, and that's what he wrote about. He said, which was considered heresy back then, that the Americans might not win this war. And he was right. Very, very striking. Um, And that, you know, we'll come to the climate that we're in right now with journalism later. But I I thought it was was quite amazing that he took that stance. Um, This book was a long time in the making. Take me back to the spring of 1998 when you traveled to Manhattan to meet the legendary English photojournalist Tim Page, who blurbed your book, when you realized that you needed to retrace your father's footsteps in Vietnam. Tim Page, wow, you know, I'm going to Australia in August to see Tim. Um, he is a chapter of my book. It's, that chapter is called Another Wild Man. Tim Page is no doubt the most famous surviving combat photographer of the Vietnam War. He, was, he lives in Australia. He was born in England. 
he's a wild man. He was doped to the gills. He would, you know, they would ride motorcycles into battle during the Vietnam War. And he defined the the liberty and freedom of the era. There were no restrictions uh, for journalists in the war in Vietnam. They could go where they wanted, when they wanted. The, the concept of embedding, which has happened in the Iraq war, did not exist then. And he, I met him when he was released his book, Requiem, which is a marvel. Requiem is a collection of the photographs of all the photojournalists who died of Vietnam, in Vietnam on both sides of the war, and men and women. And it, it's, it's, it's a haunting book. Um, you know, it brought tears to my eyes, this book. And I interviewed him, and I, I, uh, I was absolutely captivated by him. And we had a couple of hours together at the end of the, um, the book launch event uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where I used to live. And I said, did you meet my father in Vietnam? And he said, no, I don't remember him. Um, and my father didn't remember Tim Page either, though, of course, they knew of each other, but they don't remember running into each other. And he said, what we did back then was extraordinary. And we, we probably helped bring this war to an end because this war was broadcast to the living rooms of, for the first time in history, uh, to the living rooms of, you know, tens of millions of Americans, hundreds of millions. And they were horrified at what was happening in the war. And he's the one who convinced me, said, Eric, you got to go to Vietnam and retrace your father's footsteps. And that's what gave me the idea. But my mistake was, Tara, I hesitated. I hesitated for 20 years. I mean, um, you know, life took over, uh, kids took over. I moved to the Rome Bureau, the Globe and Mail, and I didn't get there till 2018, which was then seven years after my father died, which was a tragedy for me because I, some spots I could not find where he went. And also I just missed not being able to talk to him about what he saw, where he saw. Mm. Yeah. And you were, you were able to, to be guided by his Toronto star stories, a note that he wrote you before he died helped as well. It sounds like, and you looked at his movements in, in 1967. This became a 9,000 word story in the Globe and Mail that became the seed of this book. The reporting from that trip is just hugely evocative. And I have seen video of you in Vietnam, close to you know where your father was in a foxhole at one point, very emotional. Give us one or two snapshots that really stand out from that time for you. Sure, I can. Two come to mind. Now, I, I tried to retrace the steps as closely as possible using um, his original copy from the Toronto Star, which I had a, a few photographs, not many interviews with uh, a, a few people he worked with in, in Vietnam and notes he gave me shortly before he died. So it was like putting a puzzle together. He was in almost immediately after he arrived in Vietnam in early June 67, 1967, he immediately went to where the action was. He went to the demilitarized zone, which is the, the strip of land divided North and South Vietnam. And he went in with the Marines and the, he went in with 700 Marines in this horrific Contian battle, one of the most horrific battles of the war. Uh, there were 500 casualties. He was one of 200 that came out at one point 
a Marine handed him a shovel, a gun, two grenades, and a bag of marijuana and said, look, we don't protect war tourists, um, meaning journalists. You're on your own. And he had to fight his way out. He almost died. He fired his gun several times at night. He says he doesn't know if he hit anyone, but he said the, the North Vietnamese would come running across uh, the foxholes, the foxhole field at night. And he thought he was going to die for sure. So he fired his gun. And I said, Dad, did you kill anyone? And I said, he said, yeah, probably, but I don't know for sure. And I said, Dad, you know, you're, you're a journalist. You're not supposed to do this. He said, what would you have done in my case? And in fact, there are many cases, Tara, of, of combat photographers and reporters who had to fight their way out of, of battles that went against them. Um, some of them didn't make it. Um, of course. And I, I sort of got that. But anyway, I tried to find the spot on the Ben High River where he was in this foxhole. I think I got close. Um, I found the bend in the river that he talked about. I was probably, I don't know, several hundred meters from the foxhole. But I didn't feel his spirit there. Uh, it, it was... The world of Vietnam has changed. It felt like a subdivision there. There was a karaoke bar across on the north side of the Ben High River that was blasting this awful music. And I wasn't allowed to walk around because this was the most bomb part of the world in history. And every year, thousands of Vietnamese either get killed or wounded from, from ordnance that was dropped by the Americans. So you're not allowed to wander around in the forest or even by the river because there's unexploded landmines, bombs, grenades, everything. So I didn't, that's the one spot I wanted to feel his presence, but I didn't. But I did feel his presence about a week later. We went to the, the Vietnam side of the Cambodian border where the Montagnards lived and still live. My father wrote this really riveting, compelling story, including photographs of a forced evacuation of an allegedly communist Viet Cong village. So they, at gunpoint, they forced them all onto these big twin rotor helicopters and they flew them out. Anyone, any man who was refused to get on the plane, uh, on this helicopter was considered Viet, Viet Cong or Viet Cong sympathizer and was shot. So it was a forced evacuation. This, this happened a lot in resettlement. And the whole area would be considered a free fire zone. We went into this village called Play Beng, a tiny village, basically a widening of the road. They grow cashew nuts there. But it was a restricted area, and I did not have a permit. Uh, neither did my fixer nor our, our driver. And um, the driver is very nervous. He said, look, we got to get out of here. And I said, no, I need I need." 15 minutes. So I, I asked my fixer, I said, tell the fixer to ask anyone to bring out the oldest men and women in the village. And like fast, as, as, as soon as you can, can. And I met this one old man in his 80s. He was slouched, moving slowly. And we went into his house, very simple house. Underneath his bed, he had a helmet, an American helmet that that was used for storage. Um, so I knew he was aware of the war. And I gave him a copy of the newspaper that showed the Montagnards being evacuated from this, from this area in June 1967. 
And through my fixer, I said, do you remember this? He said, yes, I was there. And I, he wasn't speaking very well. I think he had chemical damage, maybe from Agent Orange. Uh, we're not sure, but he was a sweet old man. And as he just, he looked to me like a ghost then that he, he went back in time 50 years, 51 years to that moment when he was evacuated. And I felt at that moment, Tara, that he saw my father then, and then my father saw him. He may have been as a young man, even in the pictures my father took. And I know this sounds odd, but that moment just pierced me. It haunted me. I felt my father's presence then because I was in the exact spot where he was in 1967, talking to the same people he talked to. And I just, I, initially I felt hollow. And then I felt this tingling of excitement because I, I actually, I feel like I felt my father's presence. And I felt, I wrote this in the book, I felt closer to my father at that moment than at any time since, since he died. And it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. I was just tingling all the, all the way back to, to play coup. And to me, that's my favorite chapter in the book. Yeah, it's a really, really strong, uh, strong passage in the book. And what a moment. I, I want to talk for, for a minute, too, about the conditions that your father was working under in Vietnam. As you point out in the book, reporters enjoyed a kind of freedom of access, freedom of movement that is now unheard of. Um, you know, even in your father's time, though, there were those who stayed at the hotel and, and rewrote the military press releases. But I found it really striking, as you said earlier, he came home anti-war, anti-U.S. foreign policy, something he did not refrain from talking about. Talk to me a little bit about what you see as the benefits, if we can even say that, because uh, I know it was horrific uh, in enduring some of those experiences. But talk to me a little bit about what you see as the benefits of that style of reporting that he undertook. That's a good question, Tara. Um, the benefits of unrestrained reporting, I think, are, are, are huge. Uh, as I mentioned before, my father went over to Vietnam in mid-67, right at the height of the war, just before the Tet Offensive uh, in early 1968. And the, the war was still considered highly win winnable and imminent. Um, and my father discovered the opposite and was brave enough um, to report that. Now, if he had been in, embedded as the war correspondents were in Iraq, I doubt he would have come to the same conclusion. In fact, I talked to Iraq um, war reporters and some of them, even though the body count was astonishingly high in that war, didn't see a single body because they weren't allowed to see the, uh, a single body. The, 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 because they were embedded there, the Americans and the British who were with them um, only took them, I mean, basically showed them propaganda areas where, where there were no, you know, no dead children, no dead women, uh, no blown up schools, um, that sort of thing. On the other hand, the Vietnam War correspondents uh, saw everything. There was the only restriction they had was not to report the precise locations of American soldiers in, in, in battle, in a firefight, because then, you know, the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong could find out exactly where they were. But other than that, there were no restrictions. What was the benefit? 
I think the benefit was that the America, the American audience, remember this was the first TV war, but newspapers back then were very strong, that Americans got the truth of this war fairly early. Uh, I mean, the, America, the, the anti-war uh, riots and mass demonstrations started in 67, and they, they just exploded in, in 1968. And you remember that Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was the, um, the president then, was expected to run for uh, re-election in 1968, and he didn't. He, he, he just called it quits. And he, this was evidence that he had lost the war on the home front. How did that happen? Because of, because of honest and truthful and accurate, uh, savagely accurate uh, journalism that was allowed to come out of Vietnam because there were, there were none of these restrictions. And the Americans learned about learned from this experience because you know in subsequent wars there was there was huge censorship and in Iraq you had to be embedded or you couldn't get anywhere near the war. Mm-hmm. You you also wrote about how he filed his stories, which I found fascinating. You referenced this in a recent Globe piece about those covering Ukraine. Talk to me a little bit about how he got his stories back to Toronto. Oh God. Um, Every journalist who covered the Vietnam War said the, the hardest part, they said, the hardest part of our job is getting the stories out. First of all, I mean, I mean, this is obvious to anyone who's old, older than 40, uh, that there was no internet back then. There were no iPhones. There weren't even, it was almost impossible to make a landline call um, out, of, out of Vietnam. So you were, my mother only knew my father was alive. Um, and she went had a terrible time when he was in Vietnam when she saw his byline in the paper in the Toronto Star. But and then she realized that the story that she was reading, say, Saturday in the Toronto Star was probably written Thursday. So was he alive two days later or a day later? She had no idea. And, and the foreign desk in Toronto at the Toronto Star had no idea. So when he was in a firefight, uh, he would have to take a combat helicopter back to uh, a combat base. If there was no teletype machine there, he would have to take a C-130 Hercules or another helicopter to a military base big enough, a logistical base that had a teletype machine, or even fly all the way back to Ho Chi Minh City, then Saigon, the file. And this was really, really dangerous because you had to leave a firefight in a battle. You had to get on a truck or helicopter to a military base and another military base. And there was danger along all the way. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but my father said that, you know, a few journalists, perhaps many got wounded or killed just trying to get their stories out. Um, and it would take a day or two to get the stories out. And, you know, photographs are a whole other, a whole other issue. Um, it took even longer to get photographs out. I mean, today, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, it takes me 10 seconds to file the story, no matter where I am. I press send on my computer and it just goes. That, that, is, that was not the case back then. So, I, I mean, I was in awe of the, the danger they took, the patience they had, the creativity. I mean, my father said that he would, he would you know, walk around with a stack of $20 U.S. bills and he would just, they would have to bribe the, the Vietnamese uh, who, who had access to teletype machines to to you know to get in front of the queue or else they could have to wait wait for days to to get their stories out just a wild wild time my goodness um you you write 
that your father basically would do anything for a story and and your mother and your family did suffer for that ultimately but it also instilled in you the desire to be a reporter but your father's legacy at one point became a bit fraught because of the way his career ended let's just spend a moment on on that part of his story and the impact that had what was the last story that he covered that that ended his career well he's um Oh God, this is um, this really shattered the family, and um, we're still seeing the effects of it. My father went from being Canada's most famous print journalist to being a zero, and it virtually happened overnight. He teamed up with another journalist, Donald Ramsey, and um, to write a story about insider trading of Petro Canada's purchase of a Belgian company called oil company called Petrofina. Back then, Petro Canada was a crown corporation. He accused a cabinet minister. They accused a cabinet minister, John Monroe, of using insider information to buy shares of Petrofina before the Petro Canada purchase and, and, and got rich of this advanced knowledge. My father did not, this information came from the second reporter on the story. By the way, I should mention my father, the only time in my life my father had a double byline story was this one, because he who was a loner, he mm-hmm. trusted no one but himself. In the one time of his life, he trusted this young journalist, now dead. And it turns out that this journalist, Ramsey, did not have the insider trading records that he claimed to have. Um, My father was devastated. The Toronto Star was devastated. And my father um, had to resign uh, on the spot, which he did. And it ended his his career. Why he trusted this man, I, I don't know. My mother doesn't know. We ask ourselves this to this day. But it was heartbreaking. You know, he got lost his job the day... I graduated from journalism school at the University of Western Ontario in 1982, I think it was. Wow. Yeah. And so there I was, you know, getting my getting my um, my master's degree in journalism, having studied my own father's fame in in journalism school. And my father came that day and he was completely shattered because he had just lost his job. He never recovered. He got abandoned by his friends. There was financial distress uh, that came into the family. My mother, you know, having raised three children uh, who was unhealthy, even then had to go to work to make ends meet. And, uh, it, it really destroyed us. It, it really, it haunts us to this very day because we cannot answer the question. He was, he, even though he was a cynical, hard-ass, truth warrior journalist, there was also um, this oddly trusting side about him where he was very trusting of friends or people he considered friends and, and, and unusually generous with them. He had a really good heart that way. And he trusted this Ramsey. And, you know, I met Ramsey once and I, my instincts went right up. I thought, no, this, this is a wild man. I, 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 you know, I didn't quite understand the story then, but I, I remember thinking, I hope, I hope my father is doing the right thing by trusting this guy. And he didn't. It was, it was exactly the wrong thing. And he, it destroyed his life and his health. Mm. 
And this, this book is, is multifaceted. It's not just a personal story. It is also in many ways, the story of our profession and how much our profession has changed in some ways for the better. As you point out, your father's era was a very macho one. And, you know, the trauma from the carnage he saw rarely came out. Uh, whereas for you covering the, you know, the aftermath of 9-11 in New York City, there was a little more room to express that grief. But also, you know, you and I both worked throughout the pandemic and it really underscored the changes journalism has gone through. In my 20 years, we've gone from being out all the time to then doing mostly phone journalism to now being on Zoom. And you write, this is not good for our profession. In what ways do you think our profession is, is suffering for this? detachment that we now have? Um, I, I definitely think it is suffering. It's, it's uh, you know, back then to learn about an event, a story, um, you had to pick up the phone and talk to someone. And that's that era is gone. Yes, I, I, I make a special effort to talk to people. Um, but sometimes, many times, you know, me and other journalists, um, it's, it's email me a quote, uh, but what, something else has changed, Tara. Back then, the public relations industry was existed, but it didn't exist in the many layers and sophistication that it does now. And 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 I think this is damage reporting um, to to its core. You know, back then, even in my early days in the mid 80s, when I first started my career before the Internet, you could still pick up a phone, talk to a, a member of parliament, even a cabinet minister, even CEOs once in a while and, and get an interview without having to go through six layers of PRs. And, you know, in, in Europe, they want to know when you ask for an interview with someone there is not quite the freedom of, of press as, as there still is in North America. They want a list of your your questions even before the interview. And they want to interview, they want to review the questions before they even grant the interview. And when you stray off uh, on occasion, when you stray from the, the emailed uh, questions, uh, they get really upset. And that's happened to me many times um, in, in Europe, in Italy, where I, where I live, certainly in the Middle East, certainly in North Africa. It's very hard to get around the handlers, the PR men and women, the spin doctors, um, that control access. It's, access is much harder to get now. Um, and I think that's, that's damaging the industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, you know, another thing that occurs to me is in your father's lifetime, journalism went from being a working class profession. Your father's ethos really seemed to embody that to me, this kind of plain talking, truth telling, rabble rousing kind of culture uh, to being an elite profession. And uh, your father lived by that saying that we're supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) How do you think our profession is doing with that these days? Hmm. That's another good question. Um, I think that newspapers and television channels, uh, internet, news services, whatever, um, they tend to be lazy and they tend to hire from journalism schools. First of all, you have to have minimum BA, probably an MA. And you almost certainly have to have been at a journalism school. I 
never believed and don't believe today that the best journalists come out of journalism schools. Uh, I think journalism, what are the qualities of a good journalist? It's, it's you know, aggression, not taking no for an answer, uh, savvy, street smart, endless curiosity, endless energy. Those are the qualities uh, that make a good journalist. And, you know, as you said, um, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And we're not getting that as much, I think, as, as we used to, because the I think that in, in some cases, the wrong journalists are being hired. Like, why did I go to journalism school? I learned nothing in journalism school, really. I went because I knew that I probably could not get a job unless I went to journalism school, because, you know, the Toronto Star, Globe and Hill, Ottawa Citizen, all these papers, I wasn't, was not interested in TV then, uh, would just take journalism school interns and, and take the ones they liked, you know, and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, I don't think journalism can be taught. I think it's I think it's largely instinctive. And, you know, my father told me about, I mean, just horrendous. Um, I mean, we think journalism is competitive now. It was horrendously competitive back then because, you know, newspapers are big and rich and they lived and died off scoops. Um, and, you know, the Gerda Munsinger scoop uh, was basically a fatal blow to the telegram, the Toronto telegram. Uh, it was it, it just put the star on the map and, and, and everything, every other newspaper paled in comparison. Yes, my father went to university, but he, he didn't know what. You know, he didn't go to journals in school. He just he had that those qualities, uh, skepticism, energy, uh, cynicism that made a good journalist. Mm. And having been through this process now, writing the book, going on that trip, you know, spending that time in the pandemic, reflecting on all of this and thinking about it and feeling it again. How do you feel now when you think about your father? Do you do you feel how do you yeah, how do you feel? I am. Um, I've always loved my father, even though he never told me. He told me that he loved me. Um, he just couldn't express emotion that way. Um, I, um, I, when I was a kid, Tara, I always considered my father uh, a thrill seeker. That you know, here's a guy who worked his way through university, jumping out of airplanes with parachutes into forest fires in northern Saskatchewan. I mean, this is not a normal job. This is not working at McDonald's, slipping hamburgers for minimum wage. This is a guy who who always lived on the edge, always did dangerous things. And I thought, well, maybe he, he you know, he, he went to Vietnam. And that was one of four wars he covered, by the way, um, because he was simply a thrill seeker. And what I learned in this book was that, no, he was an accidental war correspondent, that he was primarily uh, an investigative journalist who, by happenstance, having lived in you know, Washington, D.C. in the late 60s, was sent to cover the biggest story of the era, which is the Vietnam War. He was not a natural war correspondent. He had never been a war correspondent in the first you know, 20 years of his career. It's it's it just landed on his lap. So then I was, when this book helped me reevaluate what kind of man my father was, what kind of reporter he was. And I realized, yes, he was unusually brave, but I don't think he was motivated by seeking thrills. I think he was motivated by seeking the truth. And I, and I know that sounds corny and, you know, what journalists wouldn't say that, but he was 
absolutely devoted to getting the other side of the story, to getting the truth, even if it meant risking his life. He didn't risk his life, I learned from researching this book, you know, two years out of my life, because he needed that cocaine high. Um, he, he did it because he wanted to find out what was happening. And that's what he learned of Vietnam. He came back dead set against the war. Um, he was in, in a minority then saying this war was going to be lost. He was telling our neighbors and friends in Chevy Chase saying that you guys, this war is done. And he was ostracized. I mean, no one would talk to him after that because that was considered sacrilege. But he was brave enough to learn this and to, to, and to write this. And so I think what I learned about my father was that he was not just motivated by excitement to the daily adrenaline rush, that he really was a truth warrior. And my respect for him has soared. Um, and, you know, I love him more than ever now. Well, Eric, it is a wonderful book, and uh, I hope that everyone reads it, and I hope that uh, those of us working in journalism can take some of that spirit into the time we're in right now, and I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tara. I, I uh, love the interview. Thank you so much. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 